the deputies are almost there. Grab his money. Okay. Keep, keep doing the compressions until they can help and take over, okay? Keep going, you're doing fine. Okay. Keep going. Come on, just spawn. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host. What you just heard there was a portion of the 911 tape from the incident we're going to talk about today. So just keep that in mind. I'll reference it a few times during the episode and eventually we'll be playing a abbreviated version of that from the trial in this case. So If you haven't already done so, please check out the previous episodes of True Blue Crime and all podcast platforms. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at www.truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations received via Patreon will get a shout out in a future podcast and a thank you message from the host. Also for no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. And without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. The town of Earlville, Iowa is your typical small town Iowa farming community. It sits in the heart of the fertile farm country of East Central Iowa. And while most people have never heard of Earlville, Iowa and its town of 716 people, the nearby town of Dyersville, Iowa, just 10 miles east, is famous for its role in the movie Field of Dreams. On November 10th of 2018, a crime would occur in this town that would bring an unfortunate spotlight to the community. Like many farms in Iowa, the combination livestock and crop farming had been a way of life for generations for the Mullis family. Now the head of the farm, Todd Mullis, he had been working on the farm since he was 11 years old and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears had made the farm successful over the many years. He lived on the farm with his wife, Amy, and their three children. Their oldest son, Tristan, was 13 and was following in his father's footsteps. He was putting in long hours between school and work on the farm and learning how to be a farmer. Now, to be a farmer, you have to have a lot of tools on your tool belt. It's not as easy as movies or anything make it seem. Farmers are not just experts on crops and livestock. They have to be mechanics, carpenters, amateur veterinarians, electricians, plumbers, and many, many more things. On this fateful day, there was a lot of work to do around the farm. Todd and Tristan started the day by driving off-site for some work. They were preparing for the arrival of piglets and needed to check on the hogs and did so before returning to the farm for breakfast Amy had prepared for them. 
Now this is a, I guess would be somewhat typical Iowa hog farm. The layout of it is two large barns described as being about a football field long each. And these these hog barns would just be filled at almost all times of the year with with hogs that are growing at different rates and sold off to market and new piglets would, would be brought in. And this is what was going on that morning is that Tristan and his father had gone off to check on these hogs and they were coming back to prepare this farm for the, for the incoming piglets. So Todd was arranging the feeders while Tristan gathered heaters for the pens. Amy was cleaning light fixtures in another barn and had emailed the farm's hog manager, a man named Jerry Frasher, at about 10-12 that morning, stating she was not happy about the work she'd been asked to do. Now, this is partially because Amy had just been an outpatient procedure four days earlier, and she was under lifting restrictions, and she wasn't feeling well that morning. And Todd and Tristan are going to walk in on her balancing on a five-gallon bucket to help her reach the lights. And both Todd and Tristan noticed she seemed unsteady and told her she should stop cleaning the light fixtures. And Todd asked her to get a pet carrier from a shed because he needed to round up some of the barn kittens because he would be using heavy machinery later and didn't want to run the kittens over. So Tristan takes over the light fixture cleaning for his mom, and he would later say his dad was always in his sight, but also later state that he lost sight of his dad for just shy of two minutes as he went into a small office to get a drink of water. Now eventually Todd's going to notice that Amy hadn't gotten the kitten carrier out, and he asked Tristan to go find it. Tristan walks into the shed where the kitten carrier was kept and found his mother on her hands and knees with a corn rake sticking out of her back. So as you're trying to picture this, best way to describe a corn rake is, is it's a wooden-handled metal rake with four long prongs. Now each of these prongs are going to be about six inches long, and it's going to look like a pitchfork, except the prongs are going to extend at a 90-degree angle off the shaft. So it's basically a 90-degree pitchfork. So if you could picture somebody holding a pitchfork and running full speed like in a cartoon into a wall and then all four prongs of this fork bend down that's what you're picturing a corn uh, fork to look like uh, amy's unresponsive so tristan yells for his dad todd runs over and told tristan to get get the truck and bring it over while tristan went to get the truck no life-saving attempts were made by todd now i know some people are going to find it strange i said that tristan's only 13 years old but remember this is a farm kind of in the middle of nowhere iowa so kids on these farms learn from a young day how to a young age how to drive machines and often the farm vehicles as well so it's not too odd to uh, somebody who lives on a farm to have a 13 year old driving a truck but tristan goes to get the truck todd pulls the rake out of amy and he would later say this is because the area is so narrow that he couldn't get her out of the area with the rake in her back still and tristan then while his dad is getting Amy out of the shed. Tristan's getting in the passenger side of the truck. Todd's going to put Amy on Tristan's lap, kind of on this bench seat of this truck, and then they're going to drive off. So Todd At 12.01 p.m., Todd calls 911. We heard part of that 911 call. Uh, that was about six minutes into the call as he's driving. Now, again, they're on a farm kind of in, in the middle of nowhere, so I'm sure... Todd and Tristan are thinking of trying to get to some type of a medical facility as fast as they can. And they don't, a lot of the times these small farms, the local ambulance service can be quite a distance away. So Todd's going to call 911 as he's driving. The dispatcher is going to tell him to pull over because at this point, 
them just driving, Amy is not going to give her any better chances of surviving. They need to be doing some type of life-saving uh, methods at this point, like as in CPR. So this is what the operator is going to tell him to do. It's going to tell him to pull over and start doing CPR. And that's what we heard on the 911 tape is he's doing CPR. And as he's doing that, the uh, first deputy is arriving at the scene. So this is going to be Deputy Luke Thompson of the Delaware County Sheriff's Office. He arrives and asks Todd what happened. Todd told them they had found Amy with a corn rake in her back. Now, again, I said this is a small town, so likely, you know, they're just a few minutes away from the farm when they make this call and the operator tells them to pull over. So they're likely somewhere at least close to town at this point and the site of a sheriff's uh, vehicle with its lights on, eventually an ambulance, is going to attract some attention in the small town. So people start coming out to see what's going on and these bystanders are all going to know each other. They're going to know Todd and Tristan and Amy. So one of them is going to take Tristan back to the farm to hang out with him and his two younger siblings. And Todd gets a ride to the hospital with another bystander as the ambulance is going to transport Amy to the hospital. Now on arrival, Amy would be pronounced dead, but something didn't just seem quite right. The corn rake as I mentioned, has four prongs, and Amy's going to present at the hospital with six puncture wounds to her back. So now the investigation is going to begin. But before we get into the investigation, we'll look at who Amy and Todd Mullis are. So Amy Mullis was born Amy Fuller on January 23rd of 1979. She was raised in Eldora, Iowa area and went to school to become a nurse and graduated as an RN. Todd Mullis was born in July of 1976 and was raised on the family farm in Earlville, Iowa. The two would meet at the Delaware County Fair, which is where Earlville is, in 2003 and get married on September 11, 2004. Together they would have three children and Todd ran the farm while Amy worked as a nurse. But likely due to the heavy demands of the farm and Amy's working a shift work style job, and they've got three young children, the marriage starts to fall apart. And in 2013, Amy has an affair with a male coworker. Now Todd is gonna to find out about this affair and some articles said that Amy quit her job and decided to be a stay-at-home mother at this point to work on her marriage. Other articles and friends would say that Todd demanded that she quit her job since her affair was with a coworker and she was going to make amends for what she did by working on the marriage and I guess being a good housewife. Now the couple will enter counseling but many would say that this affair pushed Todd to become a become so controlling of Amy that this was considered abusive to the point that her friends gave her the nickname P.O.T. which stood for Prisoner of Todd. Five years would pass and the demands of the controlling marriage likely combined with the stresses of running the farm and raising the kids while being isolated did not help the marriage. And in 2018, Amy would enter into another affair, this time with the farm's hog manager, who we mentioned before, Jerry Frasher. Frasher would go on to say that the affair was just about sex for him as he was married and had no plans to leave his wife. He did state that he felt Amy thought there were emotions there on her side. Now this would all come to a head when Todd noticed a suspiciously high level of text messages between Amy and Jerry. Amy lied to Todd and said they were about hogs for the farm and some stuff about the kids. Todd would go as far as calling Jerry's wife to tell her about his suspicions 
However, she would tell Todd that he had nothing to worry about and he was just being a little crazy. Todd would confide in a friend that he felt Amy was having another affair because her behavior was similar to what she displayed in 2013. This is something that we see in a lot of cases. The behavior of people who are having an affair often mirrors behavior of people who are committing criminal activities. And when I say that, I mean that they will often be able to convince themselves in their head that some of the things that they're saying make sense when in reality they don't. And there's certain things that they just can't hide, whether that be lack of attention towards their spouse or different things that are just part of the subconscious that happens when you fall in love with somebody else. And an example of this, we just we had the Watts family case not too long ago, and all of the feelings that Shanann had that Chris was having this affair, just the lack of attention, the lack of everything that's going on. It's just it's something that it's very hard for a person to show attention and love and support for two people at the same time. Oftentimes, one per, one of those people will experience those feelings of attraction and attention at a time so that in the cases of affairs, the spouse will often notice this drop. So I'm sure Todd's noticing this going on and as he noticed it in 2013, because likely despite going through the counseling and the five years difference, Amy's likely going to be exhibiting some of the same behaviors that she did back in 2013 when she was having an affair that she is now that she's having another affair. The friend that Todd confided in saying that he believed that she was having another affair told him he should just get a divorce. Todd said this wasn't an option because he had worked on the farm since he was a kid and he wasn't going to give it up. It was reported that the trust for the farm was around $2 million and Amy would be entitled to half of the farm's value as well. And Todd also believed that divorce was socially unacceptable. So we've got two people that are clearly unhappy. Todd's unhappy because he believes his wife is having another affair and Amy's unhappy because she's in a marriage that she doesn't want to be in at this point. But Todd's not going to accept a divorce for multiple reasons. So in a way, they're both going to feel stuck and extremely unhappy. Amy would go on to admit to a close friend that she was having another affair, and a friend would tell her that she was putting herself in a dangerous situation and that Todd would kill her. Now, as in most is almost always the case, this is a small town and rumors start to swirl throughout the town with hushed tones that Amy was having another affair. Amy would hear about this rumor spreading and ask her friend to put a stop to it, but it was too late. So we can imagine this as almost like the middle school or high school rumors where once somebody confides something to a friend and that friend tells somebody else, it's Pandora's box has been opened, it's it's too late to to silence it once once that person tells three more people and that person tells three it's just the ever expanding gossip pool at this point and there's just no way to have people just suddenly stop talking about it now this is even going to make its way back to Tristan who hears about his mom's possible affair and he tells his mom that if his dad finds out she's going to have another affair he's going to kill her Amy is being told the same thing by her friends 
that Todd is that she needs to get a divorce, but she's telling her friends that she's too afraid. This is also likely a situation where because of the 2013 affair and just by reading how controlling Todd was, it's likely that Amy didn't have a lot access to a lot of the finances for the farm. A lot of the times a controlling spouse will also control the finances. And as a result, Amy's probably doesn't have a great exit plan for the marriage. She can't just up and go get an apartment or buy another house to live in. So if she is going to ask for a divorce, she's likely going to have to do it while she's living under the same roof as Todd. And just based on what she has told her friends, and it seems like what everybody believes is going to happen, she's justified in being afraid to ask for the divorce. Now, the month before she died, Amy was away and helping her uncle who was ill. And she had recently mourned the death of her grandmother. So while storing her grandmother's furniture, and she's working with her brother at this time, she told her brother that she planned to leave Todd. Meanwhile, back home, Todd was extremely busy as October was harvesting time, and he had the hog operation to run, which was, as I mentioned before, a decent sized operation, and he's caring for the three kids by himself. So I can imagine this a little bit like the Watts case again. We've got a, a period of time in which one spouse is gone and the other spouse is left or is dealing with all the stuff back at the family farm. It, that's likely not going to help the current situation. And while Amy feels like at this point she's comfortable telling her brother that she's going to leave and she's probably feeling a little bit of sense of relief that she's out of that situation for right now she is going to have to go back into it and she's going to have to go back and you know face a husband who's likely this entire month has been hearing about the affair that his wife is having and meanwhile he's stressed about the farm and everything that's going on now, as I said before, Amy had a medical procedure about four days before the incident. It was around the time of the incident that a friend texted Amy to see how she was doing. She replied that things were still tense and she wasn't sure of anything anymore. Now, this can be taken a couple different ways. Uh, obviously not the tense part, but the she wasn't sure of anything anymore. Some people could read into it that she wasn't sure if she still wanted a divorce. Some could say she wasn't sure of, of if she wanted to stick around the, in the marriage. So it's kind of hard to know exactly what she was trying to say there. And I think some of that's going to come up here later. Now we go back to the morning of the incident and that email between Amy and Jerry about her being upset about cleaning the lights. Now that was sent via a secret email account that she had set up to hide the affair from Todd. So it's clear that Todd's watching her phone logs but she must have made some type of fictitious email account that only she knew about that her and jerry could communicate back and forth on now it'd be roughly 90 minutes after this email that amy's going to be found with a corn rake in her back so now we get into the investigation the investigation of the death of amy mullins is going to focus on four points of evidence it's going to be her autopsy findings, the crime scene, the state of their marriage, and digital forensics. 
So Amy's body is first going to be examined by a medical examiner. Now medical examiners are trained personnel who will do simple procedures and collect fluid samples from the deceased and triage deaths as not all deaths require an autopsy. So some people get medical examiner and the coroner or pathologist mixed up. Usually when they refer to just a medical examiner, this is someone who has some level of training in death investigation, but they are not a doctor. They will go out to death scenes and formulate a rather quick opinion about the death and, as I said, triage the cases. So in the cases of things such as hospice deaths or you know, the death of an elderly person who is expected to pass at some point. Uh, and there, there are usually guidelines for this. A lot of the times it's over a certain age or with pre-existing health conditions. These medical examiners will go out and do, as I said, a basic examination, uh, draw some blood, and then the determination will be made whether or not there's going to be an autopsy. If there isn't going to be an autopsy, the body is usually released then straight to the whichever funeral funeral home the family wishes the body to go to. Now, however, if there is anything with the examination that raises any questions, let's say either certain criteria are met, where a lot of times that's anyone under an age without known pre-existing uh, medical conditions or signs of abuse or neglect, anything along those lines, the medical examiner is going to take the body from the site after doing a thorough death investigation and bring the body to the coroner's office for an autopsy. Now in this case, the medical examiner is going to find six puncture wounds in Amy's back and injuries to her chin, cheekbone, knees, and knuckles on each hand. The injury to her chin had both crush and scraping components to it, but it was clean, so it didn't appear it had been caused by Amy hitting any surface. The medical examiner is going to ask to see the corn rake, which at this point is just the instrument that caused her death that was unknown how the corn rake came to be punctured in her body, and the medical examiner would later say they expected to find six tines on the rake, but they were surprised when they only saw four. So at this point, it goes, it kind of erases any chance of this being some type of farm accident, which farm accidents do happen. Farming is one of the most dangerous occupations uh, around the world between the heavy machinery, the storage, the animals, any uh, anything and everything on a farm can and will be dangerous and, and can hurt or kill someone. And as I said, accidents do happen. So I think this medical examiner was thinking with her recent medical history where she was feeling kind of faint and dizzy and she just had a procedure is it possible that you know she just tripped and fell and this corn rake again the tines being at a 90 degree angle if if this is laying flat on the ground and you fall onto it with your full body weight and nothing to catch you because you passed out is there a chance that you could impale yourself on this on this corn rake? The answer to that is yes, there is a chance. However, to get six puncture wounds, somebody would have to remove their body from the rake and then fall on it again. So at that point, the medical examiner understood there is 
little chance that this was an accident and now this is going to go on to an autopsy. Now, after the medical examiner's findings, the sheriff's department is going to treat the farm like a crime scene and it would be investigated that evening by deputies with the Delaware County Sheriff's Office. They would focus mainly on the corn rake and the shed where Amy was found. And they would also interview Todd and Tristan, and both of them would say it was just Todd, Amy, Tristan, and the two younger siblings on the farm at that time. There were no non-family members on the farm, and no one heard any vehicles drive onto or off the farm. So this is something that's done in investigations quite often, is the day of the incident, it's called locking people into their stories. They're going to ask questions that then later on can't be, the stories can't be added on to. If it's only the five of them on the property and the two siblings are considered to be too young to and not strong enough to have impaled their mother fully with this corn rake, then it comes down to just Todd and Tristan as as the suspects. So this is now going to be pretty well established that the only options here is that Todd or Tristan purposely impaled Amy or she did it by accident. And we've pretty much already ruled out the accident side of things. So two days later, a state forensic pathologist is going to perform an autopsy on Amy. The pathologist determined that the wounds not associated with the corn rake appeared indicative of a struggle. Amy had wounds consistent with defensive wounds on her hands and blunt force injuries to her chin, cheek, and ear. Now, puncture wounds to her back had two different wound paths, and the pathologist ruled that Amy was impaled two and even possibly three times. The force of these impalings was so severe that one of the tines penetrated her entire torso and exited through her chest. And this is kind of important to think of here because these tines are designed to move like plant matter and, and other things. So they need to be sharp enough to penetrate a pile of organic material, but they're not designed to be so sharp that they you know slice through meat and bone and, and that kind of stuff. Now, can they? Yes, they're metal. So in a, in a battle between bone and, and, and flesh, metal can win, but there needs to be enough force behind it and the pathologist is saying there's so much force behind this object that is sharp but not razor sharp that it's going to penetrate all the way through the torso and, and come out the other side which is indicating somebody rather strong and likely rather angry is going to have to be the person that that assaults amy with this weapon now a search warrant was conducted for the farm and all electronic items were taken including security camera footage. So there's two cameras on the farm and I don't know why there's two cameras on the farm unless it had something to do with Todd's suspicions. I know back in the late 90s early 2000s farms were kind of hotbeds for crimes by people who were going to make meth because the anhydrous ammonia that was stored on farms was part of the, the the process to make meth. So I couldn't find anything to indicate that this farm had been targeted at any point. Uh, so to have cameras on a small farm in the middle of nowhere just kind of stuck out to me as weird anyway. 
but it's going to get weirder because the security footage for the camera facing the red shed where the incident occurred could not be recovered. The other camera was working and it had footage from September 11th through October 29th, and then it started up again on November 11th, the day after the incident. But investigators would go on to say they did not know if the footage was missing or had just been deleted. Now, Todd would later state that Katz knocked the camera over and likely did that on October 29th, and he didn't notice to the 11th, and then he fixed it. So I couldn't find anything more. I looked and looked to see why what, what the deal was with the other camera, if that was the same thing, where it had just been knocked down for the entire time, or whether something was completely deleted off the other camera. There really wasn't much information as to the camera that faced the actual incident, but obviously when you're looking at the totality of this entire case, the fact that there likely could have been footage of somebody coming and going into that uh, shed where Amy was found with the corn rake is missing, and the only person responsible for that footage is the person who you believe to have attacked Amy. It just so just another piece of the puzzle. Now, Todd also had an iPad on one of his tractors, and a forensic exam of this iPad revealed Google searches such as Did Ancient Cultures Kill Adulterers? and Killing Unfaithful Women, and What to Do with Large Chest Wounds, and finally, Organs in the Body. So now, Delaware County Sheriff's Office is going to take a step back and realize they've got a pretty complicated case here. So they're going to reach out to the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations. Now, this is a statewide agency. I know we talked about the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehensions and the Jacob Wardling case. And a lot of these cases that occur in smaller towns are going to reach out to some type of statewide investigation agency because the statewide investigation agency will have agents that have assisted on hundreds of homicides, whereas some of these smaller towns or, or smaller counties, less populous counties, they might see a homicide you know, once every five or ten years. So they're just not as experienced with them. So they reach out to these statewide agencies, and in this case, Special Agent John Turbot assists with the investigation. One of Agent Turbot's first responsibilities was to figure out if Jerry Frasher had any involvement in the crime. Jerry was having an affair with Amy, so he does have motive potentially to kill her, especially with all these rumors swirling around the town, and if his wife decided to investigate it further and found out that it was true, this is going to cause major issues for his marriage. Agent Turbot's going to look into Frasher, even though Todd has said that nobody else came onto the farm that day, they just want to make sure that even though as the manager of the hogs for the farm, Frasher would have had a reason to be there that day, they just want to make sure that he wasn't anywhere in the area. So they're going to check cell phone data and check in on witnesses, and they're going to find both Jerry, Jerry and his wife could be ruled out as suspects. So now with nobody else left with a motive to possibly harm Amy, that's gonna everything's gonna circle back to Todd and Tristan. Now when Agent Turbot first interviewed Todd, Todd would tell Agent Turbot that his marriage to Amy was great and they had a very healthy marriage. This is obviously a lie, and Agent Turbot's gonna know this is a lie. It's not gonna take 
very long of talking to people in a small town to find out that that's not true at all. And Turbot would eventually use a common interrogation tactic of accusing the main suspect of the murder to gauge their reaction. So even if you don't have evidence specifically linking someone to a crime, officers will often during an interrogation just flat out ask the suspect if they committed this crime and their reaction alone can tell you a lot of information. Now, just like we talked about, you can't ever fully gauge somebody's reaction to death and use that against them. It's true that in the case of of this type of tactic, you also can't 100% rely on their reaction because people do react differently. But in this case, when, when Turbot accused him, Todd's reaction was described as flat and unemotional and simply asking him what evidence they had that, that he killed Amy. After completing their investigation, Todd would be arrested in February of 2019 for the murder of Amy and the trial would be one filled with unexpected events. So the trial itself. In September of 2019, the state will bring Todd Mullis to trial for the first degree murder of his wife, Amy. The state's case mainly revolves around the argument that no one else had the means, motive, and opportunity to kill Amy. Now, the means and opportunity are pretty clear. He's one of two people actively working on the farm that day with Amy. And as we mentioned, the other siblings were in the house and were considered too young to have the strength to inflict the fatal injuries. And only one person had an articulable and understandable motive. And now we've talked about reasons to kill before, and Todd's got a couple of these checked off the list. So Todd's angry at his wife about her having another affair, and he is not willing to give up half the value of the farm and the trust in a divorce. He's too greedy for that. So this is going to check off both love and money as motives for why he wanted Amy dead. Now, several people would testify during the trial for the prosecution. They would all state that Todd was an extremely jealous and controlling husband and that Amy was afraid of him and was planning on leaving him before she was murdered. Jerry Frasher was brought to the stand and he said that Amy had told him that she felt like a slave and a hostage on the farm and that she wasn't happy in the marriage. She also told him that if Todd found out about the affair, she would disappear. Tristan is brought to the stand and he testifies about working with his father that day and how he had lost sight of him for around two minutes while he was getting a drink of water. And now the layout of the farm, I mean, it's a pretty decent sized property, but this assault is not going to take long. It's only a matter of minutes is enough time for Todd to have gotten from the hog building to the shed to kill Amy and then return back to the shed and that's the other thing that I didn't find in any of the research here, but since Amy's job had been to go get that kitten carrier and Todd had requested that she do so, there was no mention of where the kitten carrier was actually found, but it was said that she never actually retrieved it. So in my mind, I believe that Todd asked her to go get the kitten carrier so that she would be separated from Tristan as soon as Tristan was occupied with the task of cleaning the fixtures, Todd made a quick exit, went and found Amy in the shed where the kitten carrier was, killed her with the corn rake, and then returned back to work, and then let enough time pass that he was certain that 
Amy would have died and then told Tristan to go check where the kitten carrier was. And the reason I say this is because during the 911 call, which is only a few minutes after Todd has found Amy, as he's doing CPR, as we heard, he's already saying she's cold. Now it is November, it is Iowa, so body heat loss is gonna occur more rapidly than July in Iowa, but it just seems to me that there had to have been some time passage between when she was killed and when that 911 call was made because bodies don't lose their body heat that fast and the fact the kitten carrier wasn't moved as Todd had requested. So I think it was shortly after, probably around that 10.30 time frame, when he asked her to get the kitten carrier, that this attack occurred and she was killed. And Tristan finds his mom's body about an hour or so after that, which then now gives it enough time for the body to get cold, which is what Todd says during the 911 call. So anyway, that aside, the iPad evidence was brought up in court. And while it was acknowledged that the iPad could be accessed by any family member, it was deemed to only make sense that the searches were done by Todd and some of these searches were shown to occur just days before she was murdered. So I know some people are going to argue, well, if he searched that out six months or a year or four years or even back in the 2013 time frame, that shows that he may have searched for it, but he'd moved on from it. But the fact that he searched for it just days before she ends up with a, a corn rake in her back, a lot of people said this is this is the direct evidence that shows he had premeditated this attack. He had looked up what organs in the body needed to be struck by the rake in order for her to die, that kind of stuff. Then came the bombshell. Prosecutors have been contacted by an audio expert who had listened to the 911 call. Many people thought they heard Todd whispering something, and I don't know if any of you caught it when I played the 911 tape earlier. I will play a portion of, of the trial in which, uh, because... Todd takes the stand in his defense, prosecutors are able to go after him with this, but there's there's a part on the tape where he's whispering, and the prosecution is going to say, during this time, the whisper, cheating whore, is heard, and then later on, go to hell, cheating whore. Now, the defense would claim that he was saying 3-4, and 1-2-3-4, and that's what he's whispering as he's counting out the chest compressions for CPR, but I'll play the part of the of the trial here where the prosecutor is going after him as he's on the stand with this, and see if you can hear what they hear. Do you, do you know what you whispered there? No. Did you hear that? So I'm going to play that part one more time. The first clip is 6:53 of that second tape, and this second one is right at seven. Um, I'm sorry, zero seven zero zero. Just try to listen really closely. I just want to know if you remember what you said. Right there, do you say go to hell, cheating whore? No. So you don't hear that? No. You didn't hear at 653, cheating whore? You didn't hear that? I didn't hear that word. And it's right at that, after you hear a ping, you don't hear go to hell, cheating whore. No. 
So this is going to be somewhat of a bombshell, and I think the jury is going to make up their own mind on what they hear, and just Todd's mannerisms while he's on stand uh, on the stand. Now the defense is going to admit at this point that Amy's death could not have been an accident, so they throw the whole accidental falling on the corn rake out the window because they know they can't that the jury's not going to believe that and the jury's likely going to use that against them in their decision-making process so they agree that amy's death is a homicide but they're going to turn around and say it wasn't todd so they go from you know accidental death to wasn't me wasn't there now the problem with that is the prosecution has his original interview with the police where he's admitting there's nobody else on the farm. Agent Turbett has already ruled out the only two other likely suspects that even if they had found a way to get on the farm unnoticed and kill her, they're not part of the equation. So really it's going to come down to does the jury believe that anybody other than Todd could have killed her the arguments are over the jury's going to come back with a verdict of guilty for todd mullis for first degree murder the sentencing is actually going to be delayed for several uh, months due to the covid uh, issues with the courts but in september of 2020 todd's going to be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole he will appeal this, and a lot of the information I got for this case actually came from his appeal. Uh, he appealed on a couple different grounds, the typical ineffective counsel and the fact that they had requested a change of venue because, again, this is a small town, small county, and kind of everybody knows each other. I think even the prosecutor themselves admitted they had been to Amy's birthday party or something out at the farm so it was one of those things where they felt like they are not going to be able to get a a fair and impartial jury that doesn't already know kind of some of the more scandalous parts of the case that couldn't be brought up in trial but ultimately that appeal was denied uh, i believe they were sending it for f other appeals i don't know if they're trying to go up, up the ladder to the um uh, to the state supreme court or not but uh, last i read it was there's further appeals were coming so the hero of the story i'm gonna have to give that to tristan mullis so this kid and his siblings lost both their parents that day many believed he was coached by his dad to say that he was never out of sight that day to provide an alibi for his crimes now this wasn't proven but the fact that in his original testimony he said he never lost sight of his dad a lot of people question that because there really would be no reason for him to lie to the police unless it was a you know just a manner of speaking where he's just because he was around his dad that whole morning he just kind of went well, I never lost sight of him when in reality he did or whether Todd Mullis pulled him aside at some point and said you I was with you the whole time tell the police you know you saw me the whole time which went then create an alibi so it while this isn't proven i have to believe that that there was some coaching between uh, todd and tristan that day and i have to figure and again i'm just going off of what i am assuming here that todd was likely an idol to tristan 
and it would be incredibly hard for him to go against his his father and his idol especially when it knows especially when you know that it means you're going to lose your father for the rest of your life and again i am making assumptions here i get that maybe tristan saw the way that his dad treated his mother especially when he you know he told his mother that if you're having an affair dad's going to kill you uh, maybe maybe he had already formulated opinions that his dad wasn't somebody that he wanted to be but ultimately most teenage boys especially boys who've spent their whole life on a farm with their dad teaching them all the stuff about tractors and and all the farm work and all that kind of stuff unless there's documented abuse or or something along those lines i i just tend to lean towards most kids are gonna you know idolize their their parents so the courage that it took tristan to to take the stand that day you know part of courts or courtrooms is the defendant has the right to have access to their accusers so anybody who's going to be witness is likely going to have to appear in front of the suspect who's going to be sitting at a table you know 15 20 feet away looking at them as they testify now in cases of children a lot of times this can be done via video so that that kind of fear factor isn't there i mean most kids have a fear of public speaking alone let alone in front of a packed courthouse and especially in a case where you're testifying against your father and i couldn't find whether or not tristan's uh, courtroom testimony was via video or whether it was in person but either way it's a lot of courage to come forward and be a witness for the state and be a voice for you know for justice for your mother when you know it means that your father's going to prison potentially for the rest of his life now this is a case that divided a lot of people. There are still many out there who think that Todd's innocent and somehow someone else is responsible for Amy's death. Now when I look at the case, I can't find any situation in this case where it could be anybody other than Todd. Now some people have thrown out Tristan as a possible suspect, but that doesn't make any sense on the reverse side of things where if Todd and Tristan are together the entire time and the only time they're not together is Tristan's getting a drink of water in the office that he's out of sight with his dad I guess unless you believe he wasn't getting a drink of water and he was off killing his mother at that point there just really is no motive for him to do this that we know of and so if you eliminate Tristan and the siblings it, there's the only person left is Todd I'm with everybody else, I guess, that I have a hard time believing anybody else would be responsible and nobody else had the motives that Todd did. As we talked about, the anger towards Amy, the if he can get rid of Amy, then A, he doesn't have the shame of divorce. B, he doesn't have to pay out half of his life's workings and, and half the farm. And see he gets a little bit of revenge for all that anger that he has towards her for the two affairs so i'm in the in the camp that todd mullis is where he's supposed to be he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life but i i just wanted to mention there are a lot of people out there who think he's still think he's innocent so all right that's going to wrap up the case of amy mullis that is our 
technically our second flyover country case and I did actually have another case in mind but I realized after just going through the four part episode of uh, the Terror in California series uh, I was kind of looking for one that was not as involved as, as the one I was looking at so uh, appreciate everybody, everybody for listening and stay tuned for future episodes Feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. Appreciate it, everyone. You guys have a great day. Thanks for listening. Bye.